really getting that nailed down. What do I believe in? What do I value? What are the corners I will not cut? What are things that are really important to me? That's something that's really important so that when you get to the point where you might seek out a financial advisor, a financial planner, you're not guessing anymore. You're listening to The Life and Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families, and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, everyone. Annie Dickerson here together with Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? I'm doing excellent, Annie. I'm busy planning our trip around the world that may or may not happen. <laughs> if anybody's been listening to the show for a while, they know we've talked about this a couple of times, you know, planning to take the kids on a trip around the world that has, you know, at first we were like, oh, this should totally be over by like next summer, like next fall, you know, and this referring to obviously to the pandemic, but we're, you know, it's things are definitely opening up. And it's funny, because my husband and I refer to it as like the grand reopening, because you know, there's just so many people out right now. Um, and so much kind of going on. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of going to have to play it by ear and see, but it's tough, because we're kind of planning for one direction where things are opening up, and then we're planning for another direction. And both sets of plans have to be canceled, you know, we have to be able to cancel everything. So it's like I'm planning two separate family vacations for like months on end, so that we have options, you know, I'm an options girl. So I don't like being told no, and I need to be able to, you know, I need to have these different directions we can move. But essentially, it just means that there's a whole lot of work involved because of the pandemic. So yeah, Sounds like so much work and lots of um, tracking as well to keep track of all of that. But how cool that um, you all get to pull something like this off and take your three kids on this adventure of a lifetime. And I know that they're all excited about it, too. Yeah, we're super excited. And timing wise, it couldn't have been better for the age ranges of the kids. They'll be nine, eight, and almost six by the time we get on the road. And it's just, you know, the best times. I don't know that we would have been able to do it any sooner. But yeah, we're looking forward to it. How fun. Well, let's go ahead and transition and we'll dive into our conversation today with none other than Jonathan Dio. He is a best-selling author and CEO of the Bay Area wealth management firm, Mindful Money. And what I love about Jonathan's journey is it's a very unique journey. He started out in Buddhist studies and then made his way to the world of financial services and personal finance and helping others to build wealth, which is just, I mean, it seems like two totally opposite industry, I guess you could call Buddhism an industry, I don't know, but uh, field, (laughs) two very different fields, two very different parts of your brain that you're using for those. But Jonathan definitely has become a master in bringing together those different pieces in Mindful Money. Yeah, it's such a great reminder. I always talk about reminders because I think oftentimes we forget about things that are important in order for us to find success. But, you know, one of the things that I had to do first, very early on, when when I first got into real estate investing on a more serious level, was I had to fix my mindset. And the book that helped me do that, as I always talk about, is that little purple book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. But it was, and and that's something that I think if your mind is, is shut off, to what is the potential for your money or for you and financial freedom, all those kinds of things, you'll never get to where you're trying to go because you don't believe that it's a possibility or you don't think that that's the way money works or things like that. And so it it actually, as unusual as it is, it actually sounds like the way it should be is that you work on your mindful piece first, you know, before you actually start thinking about investing, because you need to get over these, you know, mental roadblocks that a lot of us have when we think about getting into, you know, investing in general, let alone, you know, real estate investing like we do. But yeah, it was just great to kind of hear how, where he came from and how he's paired it together with investing and was a great conversation. Such a powerful episode and uh, so many good pieces of wisdom that Jonathan shares. 
And for all of our listeners out there, you know, when you're getting into something like real estate investing, that mindset piece, as Julie was talking about, is so critical. And one of the biggest parts of um, getting into that mindset is figuring out your investing goals, which is one thing that we help you do in our book, Investing for Good. It's a fantastic place to start if you're new to the world of real estate syndications. To grab your free hardcover copy, Copy, just go to goodanginvestments.com slash book. Now, without further ado, let's jump into our conversation with Jonathan Dio. Jonathan, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, Annie, Julie, how are you guys doing? Ah, we are great. Happy to have another Bay Area guy here on the <laughs> show with us today. We are here. We're all Bay Area lovers. Julie and I talk about the weather here all the time. And oh, how, yeah. Yeah. How terrible it is when it's 50 degrees and freezing. <laughs> and, you know, the sun is temporarily behind a cloud. It's beautiful. <laughs> So, Jonathan, you moved to the Bay Area in 1994 to attend the Graduate Theological Union's Institute of Buddhist Studies. And then immediately the following year, you began a career in the most logical next step, which is financial services, (laughs) of all things, which seems like you couldn't possibly have gotten further away from the Zen and the calm of Buddhist studies, at least at the at a high level, right? So start by taking us back to that time and tell us a little bit more about what led you to the Institute of Buddhist Studies in the first place, and then how you came to make that transition to financial services. That's where it all starts, right? And uh, so what just to go back a long ways, it gives a really good explanation of the story to understand where I'm from. So I'm from South Dakota. And my uh, family growing up, we we were not a family of means, but my friends all had means. And so I grew up very interested in means and coming up with, you know, having wealth or having the ability to take a vacation or having a car that functioned. Like that was important to me when I was a kid. So I studied when I was 10 years old, I was studying business and finance and investing just as a curiosity, something that I really wanted to learn about. And Naturally, that kind of went into this, this idea of studying finance in undergrad. But finance in undergrad, after eight years of basically studying it self-study, <laughs> is boring as hell. So you know, it took me about six months to figure out, you know what, this isn't really that exciting. And I switched gears. I tried literature. It didn't really stick. I found philosophy, and I loved it. I had fantastic professors so I spent four years in undergrad, three and a half years in undergrad studying philosophy and comparative religion. And then I came, you know, one of my professors said, hey, you, you know, you like this, you obviously have a good time with it. Why don't you go on to grad school? And so I checked out a couple of schools. That's what brought me to, to the Graduate Theological Union here in Berkeley. And so then, you know, I spend, uh, a, it's actually a couple of years there before I leap immediately into the, you know, financial services world. But my wife at the time said, you know, Jonathan, uh, this has been great. I've, been, I've loved supporting you in school. It's your turn to support me in school. And so I actually dropped out of a master's program in Buddhist studies. And I don't, you can just kind of figure that out. There's no job uh, for that. Even if you finish the master's program in Buddhist studies, there's not, not really a job for that either. Uh, you know, I was like, what do I do? What do I like? Can I make some money at? And I, you know, interviewed in a Wall Street firm. And Dean Witter, you know, at the time was hiring salespeople. So I started off as a sales, as a broker for Dean Witter. And within five or six years, I had been at seven different Wall Street firms. Three of those were mergers. Two of those were my decisions. And I was just like, okay, I'm done with this. And my last move, I started my own firm. And that was 2002, late 2001, early 2002. Wow. So you really had a a long history with uh, like a love from a young age with the financial services and investing and wealth building, all of that. When all the other kids were reading comic books, here you were with these big financial books. (laughs) I I read my fair share of comic books too, but I I read, you know, how do I I get money from the government to invest in a business? How do I, I read that as like a 12 year old. I mean, it's just, yeah, I deeply was interested because I didn't have anything and I want it. So how do I get this? Right. Wow. 
Yeah. So then you, it's interesting, right? It's sort of like left brain, right brain. It sounds like you had all this financial background and just natural curiosity with numbers and how it all worked. And then you took a, a, a brief sort of tour in the Buddhist space and kind of learned this whole like philosophical side of things, which is completely different as I understand it from financial services, right? And you get a real chance to be creative and open and just think about different things from different perspectives. So now tell us when you married the two, when you brought those two worlds together, what came next? I didn't even realize that's what I was doing. But I had a conversation with the woman who writes the Ford in my book, Mindful Money. And this was a conversation, I think 2000, must have been early 2009. So, you know, you might remember 2008, 2009, the world was completely melting down. I mean, more so in the financial world than it happened in 2020. Like 2008, 2009 was a serious financial problem. Global in nature, it was a real big deal. Not to minimize what happened in 2020, but that's more you know health related than this. So, but it was a really big deal. And I have a client that I just love and I adore, and she was really nervous and worried. And so we just sat down one morning and we were just talking through why I wasn't afraid, how I could maintain a belief that it would be okay without any evidence that it would be okay. She said, you know, that's really interesting. The ability to hold on and know without any doubt to know that's going to be okay when it doesn't look like it's ever going to be okay. When the media says it's the end of the world, when people are saying that capitalism is over, businesses are all going to fail, everyone's going to go bankrupt. When, that's the, when that is the, the conversation, how do you maintain that belief? And so in that conversation, she was like, you know what, Jonathan, you got to write a book. And so that's, this is starting in 2009. So my book is published in 2017. So it took me eight years to get the book out of me, to write it all down, to put it all together. It's really only the last couple of years where I've realized that what I did was I took those two parts of my life and I fused them together. And it wasn't really until like 2018 that I figured it out, that that's what that, that's what just happened. That's what it was, was in the, in the writing of the book, bring the philosophy and the finance together. And it, it just, you know, it made sense. And so what was it back? Because I remember back in 2008, I didn't fully understand the gravity of the situation at the time, but I mean, it was, the world was falling apart. It was all over the news. Everybody was stressed out about this. What was it that made you know that it was going to be okay? How did you know? There's this interesting thing about the human brain. When there's an issue or when there's you know, a series of headlines, whether there's an issue or not, when there's a series of headlines, we get pulled into this mess. And the mess doesn't even have to be ours. We still get pulled into it. And you can look at politics. You can look at you know, the data around Bitcoin, the argument, you can look at what just happened with like GameStop, you can look at just and going, that's more recent, but 2007, 2008, 2009, that was very similar. I had been active in the industry in the dot-com world. There was a moment when oil spiked over hundred bucks a barrel. And then people were like, oh my God, as it plummeted there, oh my God, that's a huge recession. It's a big problem. What are we going to do? And whatever the most recent thing is, the human brain just latches onto it And it's viewed as a risk, like it's a lion in the woods. Our brain does not function well in a thing that feels bad. And so what I do is I just, I rely on one history. Yes, you know, every little thing is different, but when you zoom out, you know, the chart patterns, when you look, when you zoom out the the human effort to overcome any kind of issue that we face, those things are the same. Yes, the details are different, but but we always work to overcome. And I just know 2008 was no different than this, right? I just know that when we have some kind of a market or economic problem, the Fed steps in. And before the Fed steps in, everyone's freaking out. And guess what? Same thing happened in early 2020 with the pandemic. And whatever the next thing is, the Fed will step in. The Fed will do something. Right now, there's a lot of talk about the risk of inflation. The Fed is not, they know that that's a risk. They know that inflation is much worse than these than the other items. So deflation or disinflation. So they're going to be on watch. They're looking for this issue. And you know what? They'll always be late. They'll always miss the early signs. They'll always screw it up in the beginning. And then they go, oops, and they fix it. The nice part about being an investor, meaning a long-term holder of capital or uh, investments, I don't have to think about 
whether they're going to fix it today or tomorrow. I just have to know that they'll fix it. And I know that they'll fix it. And I know that they'll figure it out. We're very, very, very smart. We have new tools we've never had before. We have new rules we've never had before. They will figure it out. Whatever the thing is, they'll figure it out. And that belief enables me to remain invested and relatively calm when everyone is losing their minds around me. Yeah. So it sounds like it was really a combination of like a faith in humanity and also just having seen, you know, the ups and downs of the market before and knowing that, hey, you know, this isn't, even though this may be different, we've gone through things like this before and we'll weather the storm this time as well. And there's a lot of research one can read about just how your brains act and understanding that our brain always overreacts. Our brain looks for things to be afraid of. And think about just, you know, you go home at night, you talk to your partner, your spouse, and they say that thing. And the thing is just, it's benign, it's meaningless, it was nothing. But man, it sticks in your brain. Like, why did she say that? What is that thing about? You know, if you ask her about it three days later, she's like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't know. This is what happened. This happens to me, right? This happens to me. But the same is true in investing. The thing that we're worried about right now, we're not going to remember in four years. It's not going to be a thing to us. And that happens over and over and over. So just recognizing that human proclivity, which is kind of where mindfulness comes in. Mindfulness becomes that doorway that lets us be rational when it's hard to be rational. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. I certainly have no idea where you're talking about things getting stuck in my mind. <laughs> no, no. Julie, has that ever happened to you? <laughs> oh no, never. Oh, no. I mean, the, you just Kids, described something husband. that never happens to work, business, <laughs> never. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I, every, little things, right? And it's always these little things get stuck. And so tell, talk to us. I definitely want to get into the investment side of things, but talk to us a little bit more about that mindfulness and what are some of the common speed bumps you see people run into when it comes to wealth management and their money? And how do you now help people through that? The big thing, and this, you see this all the time, is people are constantly trying to predict the future. And the reality is you can't. The corollary to that is you don't need to. Like, you can be a really successful long-term investor without predicting. That's something that's really tough to get across to people because you know we swim in this soup. Our environment is all about prediction. When the pandemic hit our shores and the next question is, oh my God, the earnings are going, what are they going to do? And the market plummets. And then everyone starts predicting how long it's going to be, where we're down, how we're going to recover, will we recover? It's prediction, 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 prediction. That's what the news cycle is. The news would just say, you know, hey, sit tight, this is going to pass. They, we would shut them off. We wouldn't listen. So the, the way they get us to pay attention is to make everything bigger than it really is. And so just recognize that there's always going to be something that pulls our attention away and realize that this too shall pass. They say this time is different. No, 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 no. This too shall pass. That's the moniker I take with me is this too shall pass. Yeah, that's so wise. I think there's throughout this pandemic, there've been so many times people are like, get out your crystal ball. What do you think will happen? Is it a K-shaped recovery? Is it an L-shaped? Is it a V-shaped? Is it a U-shaped? I'm like, how many letters of the alphabet can it possibly be? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but um, yeah, that's a that's definitely a common thing that we see and we we hear a lot is, you know, what's the future going to be like? And as we talk to our investors, that's a big question mark that they always have on their minds is, you know, if we're doing a 5-year um, hold for a an apartment complex, you know, what's going to happen in five years? And sometimes we can't say with absolute, I mean, we can't say with absolute certainty what's going to happen in five years. But to your point, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter as long as you have the strategies in place, the exit strategies and the buffer in place, then you don't have to worry about all these little bumps in the road. So Jonathan, I'm curious, you've been studying, you look like what you're like 35, 36. So you've been studying since, <laughs> since you're 10 years old, all about the financial side of things. So at least, let's say at least a quarter century, you've been involved in learning about all this stuff. So tell us a little bit about what you invest in. So it's been 40 years. Like I <laughs> bought my first stock when I was nine years old. I'm 49. <gasps> I've been investing for 40 years. I've been doing it professionally for 25. I've invested other people's money for 25 years. 
And I have literally invested in everything. I've tried it. I've tried trading. I've tried, you know, options. I've tried, I've come down what for me is I think the best thing. I'm a full-blown believer in owning, not lending, not saving, though saving is the first step towards owning. You have to own. Wealth comes from ownership, whether that's you invest in your own enterprise, as you two are doing, you're investing in your own business. That business itself is investing in property, right? So that's ownership of in a business, that business itself has a value. You can take an income from that business. And if that business is profitable, you get the income, you get that profit as well. So that's a twofer in your own business. You know, real estate's a fantastic tool to build long-term wealth. And I've, I've, I've invested in real estate myself for 20 years. The thing that I like more than anything else is equities because equities, you get innovation, you get productivity, you get you know everything new that the human race does and all that the human race produces shows up in the equity market and you know a lot of people this last year have asked the question why is the market so high when the economy is kind of having a rough patch and having a when you print this much money and just push this much money into the world it's going to end up in the hands of the people that produce the stuff right cuz we all got the money as citizens of countries around the world. And then we took the money and we spent it. And when we spend the money, if we buy food, it goes to Safeway stock price. If we buy shoes, it goes to Nike stock price. If we buy an Apple computer, it goes to Apple stock price. And that's the, wherever the money comes from, it goes to equities, right? And people got to live somewhere. So equities and real estate, I'd say those two things. And that's hundred percent of my wealth is in equities and real estate. I'm curious for anyone out there who's listening and they're thinking, well, I don't know what you're talking about. What is equities? Can you Stop. define that? Like what yeah. exactly does that mean? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, equity is stock, shares in companies. You can own them individually. You can own them through mutual funds or ETFs, but they're stock ETFs or equity ETFs or stock mutual funds or equity mutual funds. So one could pick an individual stock or equity the one that everyone knows about is Apple. I'm on my desk. I have seven different Apple devices. Probably not seven, probably four. I have four Apple devices on my desk right this second. So you can do that. You know, we always recommend much more diversification, having broad exposure, big companies, little companies, international companies, domestic companies, You know, own everything. My thought is own everything. That way you're not guessing what's going to, again, I'm not predicting. I'm not guessing, is Apple going to be the best computer in the future? I, I can't tell. No one else can either. I'm just going to admit, I don't know. So I own everything in my traditional portfolio for myself and for clients. We have no joke. We have 10,000 different stock equity holdings. Now we don't have 10,000 holdings. We own tools that have 10,000 holdings inside them, right? That's the ETFs and the mutual funds. And so you don't sit there in the morning and you're like, okay, I'm going to pick this stock today and watch it go up and down the green arrow, the red arrow, and you watch it. And then at the, you're like, oh no, now I got to sell it. And so you don't do that. You buy no. it, you buy a basket of stocks and you hold it for a long time. I, I did that. Like when I first started as a broker, I thought, first I thought I was smart enough to do that, that I, that I could play the game and beat the people that had Bloomberg's and access to CEOs. I thought I could do that. I realized probably within the first year that no, 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 I, I can't compete in that space. So I started trusting specific analysts, thinking they could do it. And then I listened, watched what they did. And, and guess what? They can't do it either. And this is, you know, take my advice, take Warren Buffett's advice, buy an ETF, buy the market. Don't buy somebody trying to pick and choose. They can't, they always lose in the long run. Oh, maybe 10% of them win, but we're not going to be able to figure out which 10% at the outset. So better is to buy the market. I'm curious, who is your ideal client that you typically work with? What do they look like? Where are they at in life? It's a good question. This, and, and I kind of, most advisors can say or would say that, yeah, we, this is our target. I've never had a target. I've never had, this is the kind of people I seek out. What we do is we actually start with financial planning. And if you start with financial planning, you're going to you attract a certain kind of person. If you start with, you know, I'm going to pick Apple stock versus, you know, Tesla versus you get it, you, you attract a different kind of client. Um, so one day, this is probably 10 years ago now, we host a lot of events for clients and we host a lot of like uh, arts things in our, in Berkeley. 
And one day we were hosting a play at a local theater and we had a, you know, 80 of our clients were there and they're up in the stands. And I do my little intro speech looking up at the crowd. And I looked up and I, and I realized that like 80% of our clients are women, which makes sense to me because, and just going back to my mom versus my dad, my dad always had a way to trade around markets. My mom said, no, no, we got to save and just invest broadly. My dad always had a trick to it, right? My mom always wanted to plan and make sure we set, up, set aside enough to make it work. That concept made a lot of sense to me. Women, are, you know, I'm not a gender specific person. If you have a planning mentality, we'll work with you. That's fantastic. But women generally are more attracted to planning. Men are more attracted, more aggressive with their money. That's what turns out to be the case. And so looking up and up at the crowd, 75, 80% women, a lot of LGBTQ clients. And that's because there's a back in the day, 10, 15 years ago, there's a much bigger planning issue with that. It's less of a planning issue today. It's a lot, uh, you know, a lot of rules have changed for their benefit, but still we have a, a large contingent of clients that look like that. A lot of folks run their own small businesses. I'm a huge, I mean, I was the president of Berkeley's Chamber of Commerce a long time ago. I'm just a huge fan of small business. So people that invest in their own enterprises just love that, do everything to support them, want to help them uh, succession plan. I want to help them make sure they're saving enough for their own futures. Uh, I just, I love the idea of people that put the risk out there, start a business and make a go of it on their own. I think it's admirable. I think they deserve the rewards they get from it. It's very, very difficult. So I'm curious to learn about the mindset of where the clients that you're describing are when they come to you and then where do you help them go? Because obviously that's a piece of, of the services that you offer. And I'm curious too, because, um, you know, Annie and I know very well, and I think we've realized more over the last couple of years, that mindset has so much to do with the success of your business, the success of your relationships, the success of your investments, on and on it goes. And so I'm really curious to learn about where they are at in terms of mindset when they come to you and where you help them get to. So in terms of mindset, it's most of our clients when they come to us are already have a level of success. And so they already kind of have a bit of a success mindset. And what I mean by that is they already know how to take care of themselves. They're already you know, exercising regularly, they're already, you know, eating good food, they're already enjoying their lives. More recently, and I mean, early last year, we started building up financial education course. At the very beginning of the financial education course is some goal setting and some very basic, what do I want my life to look like? What do I value? Because I find that in the younger generations, that's a little bit more loose. And so really getting that nailed down, what do I believe in? What do I value? What are the corners I will not cut? What are the things that are really important to me? That's something that's really important so that when you get to the point where you might seek out a financial advisor, a financial planner, you're not guessing anymore. You have a starting point. And that's, that's really, really important. So most people that come to us, they don't have a question about mindset so much. They're pretty, they're pretty some of them do, they're pretty dialed in. They're, they're asking the question like, how do I separate my work a day and how do I transition from, okay, now I'm working to get an income to now I'm doing the other things that I've always wanted to do. And my income comes from the stuff that I've saved and invested over time. And the big question is, do I have enough to retire comfortably and to remain comfortably retired as the cost of living goes up, 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 up. And that's the fundamental question that we answer for most of our clients. It's less, it's more that than it is the mindset. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. 
When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. So I'm curious when it comes to somebody who's, let's say, in their 30s and they come to you with a lot of what you just described and they say, well, hey, Jonathan, I want to retire in the next five to 10 years. Is that something that you will help them with? Or are you more like, no, that's not something that's going to happen for 30 years. Hate to break it to you. I'm like, talk to me about that. Because I know when I'm just curious, because when I was looking for a financial planner, and when I was in my 30s, I could not find anyone that had and not that I wanted to be really aggressive and really risky. But I was really looking for alternative, I guess, investments. And I know it sounds like you are focused on stocks. But is that something that you do? Is that a possibility? Would you tell me no hit the road? Like that's too soon? Or what does that look like? I mean, anything, we never judge whether something's possible or not possible. We judge, we look at, okay, so you're 30, you want to retire in say five years, so 35. What would that take? Mm-hmm. You know, do you have an income stream that allows you to put away enough that at 35, you'll have a big enough pool of assets to spin enough income off to last? Mm-hmm. And that's specifically in that instance of the 30 to 35 year old or the 30 that's going to retire at 45. I always ask a secondary question, and that is okay, so you retired at 45, then what? Right? Mm-hmm. I, again, I'm 49. I was uh, in Kirkwood with my daughter a couple weekends ago, and we were skiing with some friends. And on the way back, she was like, "Yo, Dad, talk. What is this retirement thing? And t- are you going to retire? When are you going to retire?" And we had this bizarre. This is she's thirteen. Like I had this bizarre conversation with my thirteen-year-old daughter about what retirement was going to look like for me. And it started to hit home that I know what retirement is. I don't know that I will ever retire with that definition of retirement. I can't imagine not doing what I do. I seriously can't even imagine it. And the fact that I can do it and people benefit from it and they love it, I, you know, why would I not do it? They, you know, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing, right? It's almost as if I'm already retired, right? Mm -hmm. If we define our work as something that we do for a long enough period of time to, to, to build a pool of assets from which we can then retire and not do that anymore, I question whether that's the work we should be doing. So one of the things I would counsel is if you're trying to not do what you're doing, then the the issue isn't retirement. The issue is you got to find something better to do, right? Because I want everyone to love their work the same way I love my work. Um, And yet at some day we'll retire. At some day we will not do what we do, or at some day they will not pay us to do what we do. So this conversation continued with my wife probably the last weekend, actually. So this ski trip two weekends ago, last weekend, I chatted with my wife about it. And she was like, well, wouldn't you, you know, wouldn't you like to just consult with small businesses? And there's a score program where you're, you're sort of a free consultant and you help small businesses get started and get going. And I'm like, that'd be great. And I know exactly what would happen. I would find the first person I consulted with, I would help them go through the process. It'd be wonderful. It'd be fun. And then the second person, I'd be like, oh, this is a really cool business. Could I be a partner? I'd like to invest in it. Here we can do this and this and this. And I'll just be working again because I love it. Yep. I was just having this conversation with my husband last night about how, like, I don't think I'll ever retire. I think like when I'm 80, 85, I'll be like knitting something. I'll be like, 
I could sell this on Etsy and then hire like a 20 year old to like create an Etsy store. (laughs) Dude, 80 year olds don't sound like that these days, Annie. I think that's more like 95. Okay, fine, fine. Anyway, but (laughs) that's how I'll sound when I'm 85. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I love that answer, Jonathan, because that is that right there, I think just speaks so much to the mindset piece and what you bring to the table, right? Like every financial advisor, that's not the answer they're going to give you. That's not the first thing they're going to go to is what did you, you know, what do you do for work? And maybe you need to look somewhere else. They look at it as, well, what do you do for work? How much do you make? How much can we save? What are your expenses? When can you get the next raise? And on and on it goes without care about whether you love what you do. And that is something that I think I was really looking for when I went out and started talking with financial advisors that I never really got. And it wasn't until I discovered real estate that I kind of fell into all of what you just said. And then it hit me that I didn't really like what I was doing and that this I really love. And now we're talking and all of the things, all the pieces kind of come into place. But I wanted to ask, because you talked about something, you said the income, do you have enough income now to invest, to be able to give you the income that you need to quote retire? I know, is there a number? I think maybe we've talked about this before on our show, but I don't know. Is there a number? Is there a percentage that you need to earn, right? I think this is like a number that most like fire people talk about. Like, what is that number for you? What does that need to look like? There's a lot of things to peel back in that question. Obviously, there's no one number that fits everybody. The first thing is, how do you treat a pool of assets that spins off an income stream differently than for example, your real estate. And I put, we talk about a gap income. So you have a bunch of fixed income, you know, when you retire, whatever that is, you have a bunch of fixed income. By the way, this can be when you're 40, if you have enough fixed income, right? And that fixed income for me, some of that can come from real estate. If you're talking about a 65 year old, it could be pension, social security, alimony, royalties from a book you wrote, could be real estate. And I put that above the line. And then we look at that the pool of assets that spin off the gap income, that's where that percentage comes in. And that percentage for me, well, not for me, the research says that the middle point of that is about 4%. And so you have to have, if you need 100,000, you need 2.5 million, right? So it's 25X the income amount you want to pull from it. But when I do this calculation for myself, and I, my wife would tell you I spreadsheet in my sleep. So uh, when I do this calculation for myself, <laughs> I look at three, four, and five. And if I can get enough assets so that my income stream is only 3%, that means my portfolio is going to grow, 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 grow. I'll never have an issue, never run into a problem. That is really conservative. That means I have 33 times the amount of income in assets. Okay. You know what? If I can't save enough, but I'm done. I just, for some reason, I wake up tomorrow. I don't want to do this anymore. Then if I get to five, that might be good enough for me. It's a little bit riskier. My income stream from the portfolio is a higher percentage of the portfolio. So I I do run the risk of running out. But for me, that would buy a transition period to do the next thing. You know, maybe I decide I want to be a math teacher and we know that math teachers don't make anything. So that's a bridge to get to that income stream. So that is so interesting. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Continue. So real estate goes above the line for me and below the line is just that question of conservative versus aggressive. How do you want to do it? And the reason it's important is no matter what you do, you know, if you pull off three, but you make an 8% return, right? That means that 5% grows. If you pull off five, right? And you make an 8% return, that means 3% grows. What happens if inflation is higher than 3%, right? Then your future income continues to go down relative to expenses. That's that additional piece. That's why I like that 3%. So my asset pool that I'm trying to grow, I'm trying to grow to be a multiple of that 3%, not a multiple of the four. Listen, all the research says four is fine. All the research says four should be your target. 25X is plenty. If you really think about that, what we're doing when we use that is we are making it so that we never spend our principal. So at the end of our lives, we have more money than we have ever had to seed the next generation, to leave to charity, to do whatever you want, to leave the legacy you want to leave behind for family and community. And that for me, that's everything. I'm trying to leave a legacy, not just for my kids, but there's a homeless shelter locally that I have supported for 15, 20 years now. There's another, you know, there's music groups that I want to support locally. There's, 
you know, Freight and Salvage is awesome. And, you know, I don't know if you guys know Freight and Salvage in, in Berkeley. Folk music, I love it. So I want to support them. There's the Berkeley Humane Society that they, they decided we're not killing any more animals. We're just going to find them homes. I think that's fantastic. I want to support them. Berkeley Food and Housing Project, they've been trying to end the cycle of homelessness for a long time. And unfortunately, it's tough to end the cycle, but you can end the cycle for individuals. And they've done great work in that space. So I support them. I want to leave something behind that does good things in the world. So that's you know, if I have a bigger pool when I die, uh, that's fantastic. Even better. I love it. I love it. I do want to talk about one thing really quick because in our mentoring program, we have a lot of folks who are trying to transition from their W-2 life over to their investing, real estate investing life. And a lot of them are women. And the conversation always comes up, well, how did you do it, Julie? I want to know because you went from W2 to this world. How did you do it? And you said something when we were talking about the numbers, three, 4%, 5%, and you talked about a bridge, right? So if somebody came to you and they said, Hey, Jonathan, I'm moving from my W2 life and I want to get into real estate investing. How would, what would you advise them to kind of be comfortable to take that leap? Because I think that was a great suggestion. You said, you know, you have this little bridge, maybe it's a little riskier. Maybe you look at it as just a year long thing, maybe two years, how would you advise someone on that front? So the three, four, 5% has to do with drawing from it for a long period of time. I've answered this question before, and this is the way I've answered the question. Yeah. It's, and it's not always, I'm going to start my own real estate enterprise. It could be, I'm going to start my own, you know, whatever business. Right. And obviously there's different stages of life, right? If so, you have somebody that is married with kids and they are the primary breadwinner that's a different issue than somebody that's mm-hmm. single or partnered without kids. And, and if you have someone that's single, you say, hey, downsize your expenses. Maybe keep the day job for a little while, trying to get into real estate, save, 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 get your first down payment together. Mm-hmm. If you want to do it sooner, maybe find someone, maybe this is through your mentoring program, find someone to partner with, You know, have a couple people. Maybe someone else comes up with capital, you come up with work. There's a way to make it work. That was such a great conversation. I was just bringing up the fact earlier in the show, he had brought up, you know, own everything, right? And I'm such a big proponent of rent everything. I rent my house, I rent my, at least my car, you know, everything is rent, 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 because the way I see it is that if I rent, then I just pay 200 bucks and I get the experience that I'm looking for, right? Like that's what I'm looking for. And so Jonathan would love to get your opinion on that and your perspective on that, because I think that there may be a lot of people out there who may think the same thing. Cause I think that in the investing world, especially with like younger millennials, It's like this idea of like rent, 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 you know, rent everything for freedom, right? And when you own, it's like responsibility, liability, and all these negative things. So clarify that a little bit more for us. Talk to us about when you say own everything and that's how you build wealth. Talk to us about what that means to you. There's sort of two different areas. There's things that go up in value, things that go down in value or don't go up in value. And I think that the things you want to own are the things that go up in value. Now, the two specific things where that becomes a little bit different is your house, you know, goes up in value, you know, maybe in some places in the country, it doesn't go up enough in value to like overcome the cost of inflation and the cost of your interest and the cost of all the kind of things. In the Bay Area, we know that housing does go up in value, you know, substantially over a long period of time. So, but the question is, if the cost of buying and owning the home is $2,000 a month more than it would be for you to rent, what are you doing with the $2,000? The nice part about the home is it's sort of forced savings for some people, as well as they have an asset that goes up in value. Now, the car, lease the car, buy the car, that's a whole different question because there's, for most people who don't have their own business, they can't write it off in the same fashion. So I think it makes more sense to buy probably used you know, I purchased a couple new cars. I'm always upset with myself after I do it because I realize <laughs> when I drive it off the lot, I lose all the value. I get mm-hmm. that. But, you know, it's someday it's paid off when you own your car, it's paid off. And so it's just gas and maintenance. Whereas if you lease, you'll always have the payment. That's savings and investing for the things that you need to own. So when I'm talking about ownership, I'm mainly talking about becoming an owner of your own enterprise, uh, the portfolio of equities. Uh, or real estate, something that goes up in value that pays you cash, that gives you the freedom that you want. You, you say something about about uh, millennials and how renting is freedom. So there's a point in our lives, you know, just like I hope you're doing the kind of work that you love. 
there's a point in our lives where it won't be owning the thing that is no longer freedom. It will be partnering, having kids, you know, being part of a school district, being part of a community. And when you get to those things, yes, those are relinquishing freedom, but they're also very, very good things. Let's move into the life and money impact round. We're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. The first question is, what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? This begins my entire journey of getting healthy again. This begins the journey of my financial success. It begins the journey of my being a better husband and father. So this is like 12, maybe 13 years ago. I took the first three hours of my day for myself. And the first three hours of my day are, it's, <laughs> you can almost set your watch by them. I get up in the morning, my alarm, and this is, this is shifted over time. I used to be at four o'clock in the morning. Now it's more like 5.30, but I get up at 5.30. I spend, you know, a half hour in contemplation meditation. Then I exercise, I do high intensity training. And, you know, some days it's uh, resistance. Some days it's sprinting. Some days it's a blend of the two. Then I read and write for about an hour while I'm cooling down from working out and I stretch and then I kind of, you know, clean up, get ready for the day. And I go up and see my family. Usually by about then, by about 7.30, they're getting up. So what I did is I, I captured that early part of the day. That is my part of the day. That's not, I'm not like angry about it. If someone comes down and interrupts and wants to chat and spend some time with me at that time of the day, I'm happy to do it. But doing that sets the stage. I'm thoughtful. I'm healthier. My mind is clear. I'm more mindful of the present moment. I know what I need to do that day. I've looked at the schedule. I kind of know what's going to happen. I'm prepared. That way, when Mm -hmm. something throws me sideways, I can recover. Which it will. Right back. Oh yeah. No question. Every day. (laughs) Uh Uh, Some days more sideways than others. Uh, But when it does, I, I can react. Yeah, that's so good. I started doing the Miracle Morning. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I started doing the Miracle Morning a couple of years ago, and it has dramatically impacted my ability to deal with all of the crazy stuff, COVID included, that's been going on over the last year. But it's amazing how ready and prepared you are, just like you said, to deal with all of the stuff that happens in a day and to be, you know, like you were saying, the best person that you can be, that you can show up for as a husband, as a father, as a business owner to your clients and all of those things. That has been something that I've committed to over the last couple of years and has been such a game changer for me. So I love that. All right. Second question is, this is my favorite question. What is one life or money hack that you can share with others that will impact their life right now? So this is really an interesting question. I'm sort of opposed to hacks. Like when it comes to money hacks, I'm very simple. And so the hack that I would offer is stop predicting, start planning, stay mindful. And I would leave it at that. I wouldn't get you know too creative with it. I'd be very simple, very intentional about it. Again, stop predicting and start planning. I love that. I think too many people try to find the crystal ball. And as Annie said, they sold out on Amazon. And uh, when you try to rely on Amazon for items like that, you'll be sorely disappointed. So, so I love that. I think planning is such a big piece. And when you're able to, you know, have a plan A, plan B, you know, there's really no way that you can fail because you're prepared. And I think that's a big, big piece of that. So I love that. All right. Last question is, what is one thing that you're doing right now to make the world a better place? And I know we talked a little bit about that earlier. And so I just love so much of your passion behind what you're doing and all the different areas of, you know, things that you want to help out with in the world. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, just being in a good place and being happy. Like you said, you want everyone to be happy with what they do. And I think that when people are happy with work that they do, that they naturally want to help others. So just wanted to throw that in there because I didn't get to comment on that earlier. But please share with us, what are some other things that you're doing uh, in the world to make it a better place? The things we talked about earlier were the things that I'm like donating to. Like I've been on boards and those kinds of things. That's true. But when the world shut down in 2020, this is something I've been thinking about for a while, but I was like, okay, now's the time. I started building these financial education courses. And it's not altruistic. It's not a completely altruistic thing, but it's ended up with an altruistic end. And my first thought was, you know, I'll build these courses, you know, I'll sell them for a bunch of money and all that'd be great. Right. 
What we've done is we've built courses. We have an 18 module financial education course that basically starts with goal setting, psychology, ends with investing and philanthropy. Okay. So it goes through every, how do you do credit card versus debit card? How do you pay off credit? How do you read your credit profile? It's all in there. It's fantastic. I love it. Uh, we chose for me not to be the speaker in it. So it's an animated program. What that's done is it's enabled us to give it to groups in our community. So schools, the faculty and staff at local schools have begun going through it. There's a local, it's called, it's East Oakland, EOS. There's a EOS Ventures. It's a group that supports small businesses being funded by people who can't get funding anywhere else and mentors them and gets them set up legally. And, and so I gave it to them. They're sending their, they've got 50 members in a cohort. They're actually changing the process of creating small businesses in these communities that don't have enough small businesses. And I'm offering the financial education for this group. Uh, I was on a podcast about three, four months ago. And the gentleman was, uh, he was an advisor for Special Olympics. They want to offer these courses to the Special Olympics athletes. So I found something I've, I love to do. I think it's really important that doesn't exist in the world. And I found a whole universe that wants it for free. And so if you guys want it, if you guys know groups you want to give it to, I'm happy to give it to them. I never got that in my school system. I don't know if you guys got it in your school system. I talk to people all the time. They might've learned how to balance a checkbook, which no one even does that anymore. And they might've learned how to some kind of home ec thing. They might've learned how to you know, make escargot and maybe make a pillow, but that was it in terms of usefulness of these things. So I'm just excited it's out there and we're offering it to lots of people. And you know, we may make some money on it at some point in the future, but I don't really care about that. I think it's, that's what I'm doing to make the world a better place. That's the one thing that I've taken my passion and my belief and built, and I'm excited for it. That is absolutely incredible. Education and information. Uh, it's something that Julie and I believe wholeheartedly in. I started my career as an elementary school teacher and Julie and I spent some time uh, volunteering with junior achievement teaching in the classroom. And so we are absolutely just as passionate about that financial education piece is what's going to change the world. And so Jonathan, tell our listeners if they wanted to follow up with you to maybe take your course or to get a copy of your book or follow up with your company, what's the best place that they can go to learn more? Yeah, the best place is our website, mindful.money. There's no com or net. It's just mindful.money. Um, and if we can put a link in the show notes, we'll put a link to a special offer for folks who are listening. Give people, we'll give people 25% off when they sign up and I'll send you a code that you can include in the show notes as well. And, and let's spread it out. Let's spread the, spread the education. Let's do it. Jonathan Dio, best-selling author and CEO of the Bay Area wealth management firm, Mindful Money. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here with us today. Annie and Julie, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of the show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations.